Leaving chapter 1 of Matthew's Gospel, it's entirely fitting that we begin with the Son of David. And so we do. But we begin not here in Bethlehem. We go back to the scripture reading that we took from Isaiah's prophecy. And so we begin in the hill country of Judah. We begin in a field. There the Spirit of God takes us to a field that now hears the sound of earth moving. Men cutting into the earth, building ramparts. We come into the fuller's field, and there you have men of all stripes working. But what is so very obvious is that they are working against hopelessness. The prophet tells us that they are so afraid that they're like the trees bowed in the wind. There's a somberness that settles over the work party. And there on that field you see a son of David, Ahaz by name. There with his royal entourage, just as fearful, just as gripped by a sensed despair as all the men working around him. And it's in that context that God sends his prophet. And so we see Isaiah and his son, Sherejashev, walk onto the field. And unlike the king and unlike his workers, the prophet still has the blood in his cheeks. He's not trembling like those to whom he's addressing himself. He stands there without any difficulty whatsoever, without any tremor. He begins by telling Ahaz and all of those who are within earshot, that God would certainly deliver. Now friend, there was a northern confederacy that could have overwhelmed in human terms all of those who were there willing to fight in Judah. And yet the prophet here stands and says, deliverance will come from the hand of God. But then as you remember, as the prophet concludes that first discourse, he leaves with a very basic statement. And is addressed to Ahaz. This son, this grandson of David, who is a man after God's own heart, a man who, even in the midst of all kinds of difficulties, threw himself upon the covenant of God. The prophet addresses Ahaz, son of David. And he says, if you will not believe, surely you shall not be established. You see, friend, the word of God comes and it urges man To trust that which the Lord has given. The Lord here sends the revelation of his deliverance. And he goes to the son of David and he says you must entrust yourself to it. Entrust yourself to God's gracious promise. Now beloved we will of course be coming back to that scene. But I want to say this just at the beginning. Every single one of the evangelists come to us in the same way. They come to us not in the face of Ephraim or Syria. They come to us urging us to trust In Jesus Christ. This one who is the embodiment of the covenant. This one under whom alone we may find salvation. And so the evangelists labor to give us this Christ. To set before us under inspiration of God's spirit who this one is. Who is the covenant given to the people. And friend this morning that's precisely what we're presented with. This Christ. And we're presented as well with Isaiah's statement. If you will not believe, you surely shall not be established. Well, friend, what do we see of this Christ? Well, we take up our history as we left it. You remember that in Luke's Gospel, we have Mary traveling down from the Judean hill country back to Nazareth. 
And so she leaves Elizabeth in the third month of Mary's own pregnancy. That's where we find her. Uh, perhaps somewhere within a four-month vicinity after her time with Elizabeth. As we come to Matthew's Gospel, though, we're told that as she's there, it becomes apparent that she's with child. This is something that was not visible beforehand. And so Matthew's Gospel gives us Joseph's response. We were told in Luke that, of course, she was already espoused to Joseph, the son of David. In Matthew's Gospel, the text we take up this morning, we're told his response to Mary's obvious pregnancy. I want you to notice just a few things before we begin. As the text presents this historical moment to us, starting in verse 18 and through the rest of the chapter, there are several stages that we walk through. First of all, in verse 18 and following, you have the impediment. There is something here that is a conflict. We know, of course, that Mary is with child from the Holy Ghost. But as you look at verse 18, Joseph very clearly doesn't. Or at least, not in the fullest sense does he understand it. And so he intends to put her away. He intends to break off the espousal. Now, we go from the impediment to the revelation. The Lord responds in verse 20, telling us, telling Joseph that this child is not illegitimate, conceived of the Holy Ghost, and commanding Joseph to take Mary, his wife. We have then an interpretation given to us, an interpretation of a prophecy that came to us, first of all, on the Fuller's Field. Back at that scene, back when we stood around Isaiah, Shergeshev, Ahaz, and his entourage. That prophecy, of course, given to us there in verses 22 and 23. And then finally, verses 24 and 25 give us the fulfillment of what was promised, of course, to Joseph, first of all. But, of course, also looking back through the corridors of time. It would have been promised to the people of God of old. So you have those four components. There's the impediment, the revelation of God, that prophetic interpretation of all that's going on, and its fulfillment. But through all of this, friend, I want you to notice that there are really only two characters, if we could put it this way, that are the principal focus. The first one is the most obvious one. It's Joseph. We're told here in verse 18, that Joseph, well, verse 19 rather, that Joseph was a just man. A just man. And this is supposed to explain to us why he is going to do what he's going to do, or why he intends to do what he intends to do. In verse 19 he says, He was a just man and not willing to make her a public example. But he was a just man who was willing or mindful to put her away. Now, as you look at this text, what you have here, of course, is Joseph is described here as an upright man. In the context, we can't miss what this means. Joseph is not a man who thinks lightly of sin. He is not a man who is going to deal lightly with sin. He's a man who thinks much of the law of God and of God's righteousness. That's the idea. And that explains to us in some sense why he then is minded to put Mary away. But then I want you to notice this. Not only is Joseph described as a just man, but as you look at this in verse 19, he is also one who is merciful and not willing to make her a public example. He was going to put her away privately. Now, the idea here is very basic. This is a kind of divorce. Um, in, in the Old Testament scriptures, all throughout the first, second, and even third centuries, you have the fact that being espoused to somebody was a form of marriage. Even if it wasn't consummated, it was still a form of marriage that, to be dissolved, required divorce. And so Joseph is going to do that. At least he intends to do so. But note how he's going to do it. 
He's a man who will not look lightly at sin. But yet he's not willing to make Mary a public example. Now, now friend, immediately we're confronted with the idea that Joseph here is in a conflict. That's how the gospel writer presents us to him, presents, presents him to us, rather. You see here he's a man who will not regard flagrant iniquity lightly. And that means then, friend, that if he really believed that Mary had been unfaithful, if he was certain of that, well then certainly it would also make sense because he's a just man, and because he would not want to encourage the same sin in others, that he would put her away publicly, not privately. So what do we make of this? I think David Dixon is very helpful here. He says, on the one hand, there was such evidence of purity and holiness in the character of the Blessed Virgin that Joseph could not find a reason in justice to make her a public example. On the other hand, there was such certainty of her being with child and that this child was not his that he was minded to put her away privately. In other words, he was informed of Dixon writes, though he did not fully believe. We'll come back to that in just a moment's time. But that's the first focus. Joseph emerges as the primary character. But the second character, of course, is Jesus Christ. We're told here in the Revelation that in verse 20, Christ was conceived in her of the Holy Ghost. This tells us two things. On its most basic level, it tells us that the virgin here had not been unchaste. She was chased all the way through. But friend, more than that, of course, this tells us something about the deity of Christ. Conceived of the Holy Ghost. Just as we found in Luke's Gospel. Yes, taking of the substance of the Virgin, but truly being Son of the Highest. What you want, I want you to notice here, then, is that as Christ is presented to us in this text, the Gospel writer presents to us the prophecy, first of all. Now, he presents this to us, of course, in verse 21. But, I'm sorry, verse 23. The prophecy is quoted in entirety. Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. He's saying that this prophecy has been fulfilled in the first century, some five centuries after the sign was first given on the, pla- on the plains of Judah to Ahaz and to all who heard him. But I also want you to notice this, that not only was this a sign given five centuries ago, this was a sign specifically given to the house of David. You can turn there if you like, but if you look at Isaiah 7, the prophecy that's quoted here in uh, chapter 1, verse 23 of Matthew's Gospel, is directed specifically to the house of David, not to Ahaz himself. The you there in Isaiah's prophecy is in the plural. This sign is given to you, that is to all the constituent members of David's house. And of course, as we found through the genealogies, the angel appears to one of those constituent members, Joseph. We can't miss that. The Lord here says that in Christ, this prophecy that was given five centuries ago and to the house of David has been fulfilled. I want you to notice, too, that in this text we're told two things. We're given two names for Christ. Of course, we're given the name Jesus. And then we're told in a quotation from the prophecy in verse 23, he's called also Emmanuel. What's striking about this, friend, is that in both cases, not only do we have the names, but also Matthew labors to give us the interpretation of those names. That's significant for our understanding, but we'll come back to that in just a moment's time. What we find here, then, 
is that Jesus, this one who was born son of the highest, born of the virgin, is Emmanuel, God with us. And also, he is the one who shall save his people from their sins. What you have then at the very end, verse 25, is the fulfillment of all of this. Joseph names Jesus. My friend, that's important for us to understand. Uh, Joseph here, naming Jesus, is actually quite crucial to what we've looked at before. By naming Jesus, Joseph adopts formally Jesus into the legal line. Though biologically, through the virgin, he was descended from Mary, the royal kingship throws, flows from the father. And so this last royal heir of David's throne names Jesus, which means then, friend, when Jesus walked the earth, he was even legally, not just biologically, the only rightful king to David's throne. The adoption of Christ is crucial in this case to, under, to our understanding. But as we look at this text, just briefly, I want you to notice a few things. First of all, we are confronted immediately as we leave the genealogical tables with the fact that Christ here is Son of David and God incarnate. This is what the Gospel writer is laboring to set before us through the history. He is Son of David really and legally, but he is also really and truly Son of God. David's Son, yet David's Lord. The second thing, friend, I want you to notice here is that as you look at this text, you also have a very clear picture of not only the person, but also the calling of Jesus Christ. He is called to save his people from their sins. This is not a carnal redemption from Roman overlords. The gospel writers are not confused at this point. He is going to come. His office is to come to save his people from their sins. But then, friend, what you can't miss over all of this tied together with the prophecy that's quoted here, is then Jesus becomes a sign against unbelief in the house of David, against Ahaz's unbelief, but even to some extent, even Joseph's misbelief, as we read from Dixon there just before. And really it's also an answer to all sin. Christ is then sign and Savior both. And our theme then for this morning is just briefly this, that Jesus is God's answer to unbelief and all sin. Jesus is God's answer to unbelief and all sin. I want us to see that in three headings. I want us to see, first of all, the Savior himself, the salvation which he has promised to bring, and those whom he saves, their character. And so briefly, friend, I want us to look at the Savior himself. I want you to notice the names that are given here, Jesus and Emmanuel. And I want us to take those in the reverse order. First of all, Emmanuel. Matthew interprets it for us, that this means here, God with us. God with us. Now friend, of course what this means is is that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, dwells among men. He is God of God and light of light, walking among the sons of Adam. This is something that we encountered actually a year ago in John's Gospel. Christ tabernacled among us. And friend, this can be truly said of Christ, because in him dwelleth the fullness of the Godhead bodily. I mean, it's so much the case that the Apostle puts it this way, that the light of the knowledge of the glory of God is seen, he says, in the face of Jesus Christ. So much so that when Christ speaks to his disciples, he says that he that has seen me has seen the Father also. 
Now, friend, what this means powerfully is just this. That in Jesus Christ you have the fullness of the Godhead dwelling bodily. He is God incarnate walking on the earth. Now, beloved, this is the first thing that we have to recognize. Matthew's gospel is presenting to us not just the son of David. He is presenting to us God in the flesh. We left the genealogical tables finding David, of course, emphasized time and again. But then as we come to the fulfillment of these things, he brings us not to David's son like Joseph, but to David's greater and greatest son who is God incarnate, who is truly Emmanuel. Oh, friend, what we have here then is the confession is the son of God, the second person of the Trinity, very God, eternal God, of one substance and equal with the Father. As the creed puts it, God of God, light of light, and very God, a very God. We begin, friend, we begin our time in the history of the life of Christ with an emphatic statement that God tabernacled among men. But what does that mean? Friend, I want you to just think for a moment about Genesis 3. It's something we thought about last Lord's Day morning. You go to Genesis 3 and what do you have? You have sinners who are there standing naked in the garden, pulling together fig leaves, trembling because God has shown up. Or let me take you to Manoah and his wife. There God appears to them through theophany. And Manoah's response is this, we shall surely die because we have seen God. And then, friend, famously, you have Isaiah the prophet. A man called by God to be a minister of the everlasting gospel. He's confronted with God before him in the vision. And here's his cry, Woe is me, for I'm undone. For I'm a man of unclean lips. And I dwell among a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes, he says, this woe is pronounced upon him. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Oh, and beloved, what was it that Isaiah beheld? Who was it that Isaiah saw? According to John's Gospel, John 12, 41, the one whom Isaiah saw, says John, was Christ. That is whom the prophet saw, and he cries out, Woe is me, for I am undone. Then how fitting was it for Peter? How fitting was it for he to stand before the one who is God in the flesh, and cry, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. Friend, this is Christ, the radiance of the glory of Almighty God. This is what it means when we say Emmanuel, that a thrice holy God walked among men. Now, beloved, we then see that he is the radiance of the divine in every respect. He is the one whom it is said the heavens of heavens cannot contain. He is the one before whom even the heavens are not clean. This is the Christ of whom Matthew writes. David's son, according to the genealogical tables. And David's God in the flesh. Now friend, if that is who Christ is, the next name shows us his office. He is called Jesus. He is called Jesus, which being translated is Jehovah, is either my salvation or is Jehovah the Savior. 
Uh, that is Joshua in the Hebrew. The Hebrew word Joshua and the Greek word Jesus are the one and the same name. So as you're reading through your English Bibles, you'll find that Joshua, the son of Nun, is called Jesus, both in Acts 7.45 and in Hebrews 4.8. They're the same name, just in a different language. Friend, I want you to go back to Joshua just for a moment to understand the name. Joshua's name was not given to him, Joshua. None, his father didn't name him Joshua. It was Moses who named him Joshua. In Numbers 13, we're told that Joshua's name originally was Hosea. But Moses renamed him Jehoshua. Again, the word Jesus in the Greek. Now friend, what does it mean? The change of name is from the word salvation to Jehovah is salvation. Or Jehovah, the Savior. And what we're told in Matthew's Gospel is that this name that Joshua held as a type, as the one who would lead God's people physically into the land of promise, is fulfilled in Christ. He really is Jesus. He really is Joshua in its fullest sense. And friend, I want you to understand that as we look at this text, it must be this way. The name most fully applies only to Christ because he only is Emmanuel. He only is Emmanuel. Emmanuel alone could be Jesus, Jehovah the Savior. I mean, look at the prophet just for a moment. As you read from Isaiah, you find these words from the Lord, I, even I, am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last, and beside me there is no God. There is no Savior. There is no Redeemer apart from Jehovah. And so if the name is held by any other human, it's only as a type. In Jesus, it is fulfilled in its complete in its completeness. Oh, beloved, what does this mean? It means that when we come to Psalm 118, and we say, Blessed is he that cometh in God's great name, us to save. Friend, it is Jehovah the Savior of whom we sing. Jesus. And he alone. He alone. Other commentators straining out a gnat would argue that we can't see Jehovah in the name Jesus. Uh, but I think our most judicious commentators in the past would argue otherwise, and for good reason. Because it is Jesus who takes us to that heavenly king, his office to redeem sinners, to redeem them from the house, the true house of bondage. But friend, I want you to note this in its context. How fitting is it that David's last heir would be called Emmanuel? How fitting is it that David's final rightful heir would be called God with us? You remember, friend, David longs to build a house for God, a habitation for God. And then in response, God says, I will build your house. And he promises there that the line of the Messiah would be his line. And then we're told at the end of the genealogy in Matthew 1 that his name is Emmanuel. God with us, not a temple, not a stone, not a stone structure, but really God incarnate. How fitting is it that the son of David would have that name? But even then, friend, how striking is it as you look through this text, as you leave the genealogy, and this is why we read it, as you read the genealogy, it concludes with this, Jesus, Jehovah the Savior. That's the final rightful heir to David's throne. That's his name, Jehovah the Savior. 
Oh friend, how striking is that? That you go through the running centuries and you see the line of David, one sinner after another, one longing expectation followed by another, the aeon set before you, all longing for salvation, the one who would come in God's name to save. And the very final name literally, the final name literally in David's pedigree, the final name is Jehovah the Savior. Oh beloved, that should thrill you. We're speaking of these things in the past tense. We're speaking of these things in history. Jehovah the Savior has come. And beloved, that leads us then to see how wicked it is, how blasphemous to use even these names in vain. These names contain for us not only the person, but even the gracious work of our God. How wicked is it for it to be turned into a swear word? This is the God who has created all. But then, friend, how wicked is it for us even to use these names lightly, unthinkingly? How pregnant are they with meaning? How full are they with sanctity and grace? Friend, every time you and I name the name, a tremor would light would rightly go down the spine. Jehovah the Savior. That leads us to our second heading. What is the salvation that he procures? Now, friend, we find again these names help us understand that. Again, taking first of all Emmanuel. He is God dwelling with us. Now, what does that mean? Now, friend, I believe in this text implicitly what you have is the idea that he is going to be the one who delivers from wrath. And I only take you back to those scenes that I took you to just moments ago, where there you have sinners trembling because God has shown up. Why are they trembling? Oh, friend, the reason why they're trembling is because they're in the presence of a holy God. Well, you say, well, that didn't bother Adam before. Before the fall, he didn't tremble. In fact, he named, the na- he named all of the animals in God's presence. There was no difficulty there. No friend, man trembles before a holy God because man is sinful. Because man is a traitor. He is the rebellious race of Psalm 2. And so you find in those cases that as God shows up in special ways, men are certainly aware of their sinfulness and of God's holiness at once. They tremble, in other words, friend, because they know that our God is good and that they are not. And so what is their expectation? Their expectation is just this, that they who are his enemies will know that the earth shook and trembles. The foundations of the hills are moved and are shaken in his wrath. David goes on to describe how God deals with his enemies. There went up smoke out of his nostrils and fire out of his mouth devoured. Coals were kindled by it. He bowed the heavens also and came down and darkness was under his feet. And he rode upon a cherub and did fly. Yea, he did fly upon the wings of the wind. He made darkness his secret place. His pavilion round about him were dark waters and thick clouds and skies. And the brightness that was before his thick clouds passed. Hailstones and coals of fire. The Lord also thundered in the heavens and the highest gave His voice. Hailstones and coals of fire. That is the expectation of sinners, friend. That, in Psalm 18, what I just read to you, is David's rehearsal of what God will do to His enemies. He will bring all of heaven and earth down upon those who are His stated rebels. 
And so, friend, as we look at the word, the name Emmanuel, if he comes and he dwells among us and we are not destroyed, we must recognize that this one is coming to deliver us from the wrath of an offended God. We can't miss that. We'll have time to reflect on that later on in our times in the Gospels, but it's important for us to note that as we come to the other name. And that second name, of course, is Jesus. Jesus. Now, friend, as we look at this text, I want you to notice that the office that Christ holds here is actually defined for us. Now, as I said before, the name Jesus simply means Jehovah is the Savior or Jehovah is my Savior. But in the text, Matthew gives us even a further explanation of what Christ is to do. I want you to notice this. He says he shall save his people from their sins. I want you to note that, friend, just for a moment. He says he shall save his people from their sins. The idea is he will save his people from sin itself. Not just its consequences. Not just the just wrath that sin has merited. He will save his people from their sins. Now friend, I want you to think just for a moment about what sin is. It is an absolute privation. I mean, think of how the scriptures speak of this. Your sins, says the prophet, have withholden good things from you. But what are those good things that sin has withholden from us? Your iniquities have separated between you and your God. And your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. That's what sin has done. It has separated us from the God of all life. And so when the apostle writes, what does he say? We're alienated from the life of God. That's what sin has done. It has deprived us of God. Of the blessing of God. Of the life of God. That's what sin does in itself, friend. That's the character and that's the misery of sin. I mean, I want you to know, friend, it's a truer statement about oneself could not be made. When the apostle says, for in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. Is deprived man, every one of his faculties, tainted by sin. Says the apostle allowing no good thing to dwell there. And then, friend, not only does it take away these things, but it even takes away from us the warrant or the title to life. Cursed is every one that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. That's what sin does itself. But, friend, if that weren't enough, note how the scriptures speak of the misery that it brings. Those who are under its dominion are walking, says the Apostle, in the course of this world according to the prince and power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. And then, friend, note the woes attached. Woe to them that draw iniquity with cords of vanity and sin, as it were, with a cart rope. A woe is pronounced upon those who are in sin. Friend, I don't know about you, but too often when I hear the gospel presented, I hear wrath is the problem, not sin. And certainly, friend, wrath is something that requires our attention, but in our text, it's not just wrath that Christ comes to save from. It is sin itself. I wonder if we actually have a a, a real sense of the odiousness, to put in another way, the sinfulness of sin. 
Oh, friend, if we could peel back the callousness of our own hearts and really peer on what evil lies within, I think, friend, we would easily tremble before a holy God. And we would cry out, don't deliver us merely from the fires of hell, but deliver us from this hell within that is sin. Do we have that sense of sin? Well, friend, the scriptures tell us that Christ came to deliver us from it. To deliver us from sin itself. You see, friend, the sinner walks unlike those who are in Christ. The sinner walks from death to death, death, not from life to life, as it is in Psalm 84. We need a deliverer not only from hellfire, but from sin. And so, friend, that's precisely the emphasis, a striking emphasis at the early stage of the gospel. I've never seen this before. But friend, even in, even in Luke's gospel, this is the very thing that Zacharias emphasizes. You remember when he says this, he, as he reiterates the promise, he says that he would grant unto us, that's God, that being delivered out of the hand of our enemies, we might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. Delivered from sin, says Zacharias. That's the promise. Not just from wrath, but from sin itself. That's the salvation that is promised in Christ. And so, friend, the Gospel writer urges us to go to Christ, not only to flee from sin's consequences, but from sin itself, and to find that refuge alone in Jesus. And thirdly and finally, friend, we need to ask the question of the saved. If the Savior is Emmanuel, God who dwells with us, if He is Jehovah the Savior, and if this salvation is from sin, well, we need to ask the question... What is the character of those who are saved? And just briefly, friend, I want to take you back to Joseph. You remember in the revelation that comes from God, there is a command. He is commanded to do two things. To take Mary, his wife, and to name the child that she will bear, Jesus. Those are the commands. And friend, when Jesus is named, what is Joseph doing? On a very basic level, beloved, we can't miss this. It's an act of faith. To name this child Jesus is Joseph saying that he is Jehovah, the Savior. Striking thing, isn't it? But what does this faith look like? I think too often we read the scriptures without thinking. And this is one of those cases I think we're easy to forget the realism of this history. Friend, our careful reading of this text tells us quite a lot. You see, who was Jesus thought to come from? Certainly Mary, but they were thought, as Luke's Gospel tells us, also to be the son of Joseph. When Joseph adopts Christ, what does the onlooking world assume? That he was the son born of Joseph and Mary's sin out of wedlock. Had Joseph put her away, the child would not be thought by the public to be from Joseph's lineage. But now, friend, throughout the rest of his life, Joseph will be called the father of Christ. And the way the world takes that, as we see in Luke's gospel, as we see also in chapter 4 of Luke's gospel, verse 22 They take it to be as though Mary and Joseph had sinned and Christ was the product of it. Friend, think about that just for a moment. What is Joseph really? What is he doing here really? 
In obedience to God, he's willing to take all of the reproach of the world. Like Mary before him. Mary knew what lay, what lay, lay in store for her. She knew how she would be reproached. And yet in obedience to God and in exercise of faith, she submits happily. I mean, friend, all in all of this they look more and more like Christ, don't they? Here's what the world said of Christ. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a man gluttonous and a wine-dipper, a friend of publicans and sinners. And here Joseph and Mary speak on behalf of all of the godly. The servant is not greater than his Lord, and so let us go forth therefore unto him, without the camp bearing his reproach. Let the world think what they will. Let me hold only to Christ. If he suffers in dignity, then I must suffer in dignity. If he is to suffer reproach, who am I not to suffer reproach as well? This is the character of those who cling to Christ. And friend, how then, how unchristian is it to be, to be so adverse to reviling? How unchristian is it for us to be so averse to bearing reproach for Christ's sake? When the world called him a wine-bibber, a publican, a friend of publicans and sinners. When Mary would be thought, and Joseph thought, to be unchaste for his sake. Friends, we close. Just a few thoughts. How is this an answer to unbelief? Well, Christ is an answer to unbelief because God has fulfilled all of his promises. And he also grants that self-denying faith that we find here. Faith Ahaz didn't possess, but Joseph did. But the question is, friend, how then did he save us from sin? As you look at this text, what you're told here very plainly is that Christ is the one who delivers not only from wrath, but more and more, conforming his own into his likeness, puts sin really to death. He is Savior from its dominion, and in glory, that salvation is consummated in perfection. The question we have to ask is, what is Christ's name to us? What is Christ's name to us? Can we speak it lightly? This morning. Can we speak it lightly? Unto you which believe, says Peter, he is precious. His name is precious. His name is worth more than life. There are three exhortations that I'll I'll stress as we close. Friend, this text, like all, urges us to place faith in Christ. Every part of this text urges us to lodge ourselves in the one who is Emmanuel and who is Jesus. Friend, it also urges us to be those who are quick to repent and to confess. Uh, Just thinking of that third point. Friend, what you have here in Joseph is a man who is quite willing to bear reproach. Reproach he wasn't willing to bear before the revelation, but reproach he's willing to bear after. But we are sinners, friend. We are sinners, and reproach is certainly warranted for us. And are we, friend, who are we to deny just reproach when he who deserves none, speaking of Christ, suffered it for your sake? How slow are we to be willing to be corrected, to be reproached for our own sin, whenever Christ, who was without sin, bore willingly even the reproach of the world?
Humility, friend, is in order. But lastly, friend, the exhortation is to plead for and exercise this self-denial. There is only one name, only one name that God has exalted above every name that is named, whether in heaven or on earth, and that is Christ. These names that we took up this morning just briefly are above every name. And so we should be pleased that only his name is remembered. Let ours be forgotten, but his, who is Jehovah the Savior, who is God with us, let his only be, let his only be remembered. Amen. Thank you.